You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com So long, Mom. I'm off to drop the bomb. So don't wait up for me. But while you swelter down there in your shelter, you can watch me on your TV. While we're attacking frontally, watch brinkily and huntily, describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. Yeah! Little Johnny Jones, he was a U.S. pilot, and no shrinking violet was he. He was mighty proud when World War III was declared. He wasn't scared, no siree. And this is what he said on his way to Armageddon. So long, Mom. I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up. Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 15th day of November, 2009. I'd like to welcome my listeners, as always, to the podcast and invite them to check into the websites, corbettreport.com, alqaedadoesntexist.com and reportagebook.com where you can find out more information about my forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. Also, please check out and support the websites that help to distribute this podcast, including KROCKS Radio 1 at zeropointradio.com, radioforall.net, cascadiapublicradio.org, and archive.org. For those who have been keeping track at home, This week has been another incredible week for the Corbett Report, with four new videos totaling 40 minutes of brand new video footage having been released this week, two new articles penned by myself and one by a guest article author, and of course, the Corbett Report's exclusive interview with Daniel Estulin about the G20 finance ministers meeting in Scotland last week. As a testament to just how far my little voice is carrying on the backs of incredible listeners like yourself who are helping to spread the word about the Corbett Report website, of the hundreds of media requests that Daniel Estulin received regarding his PR release last week over the G20 finance minister's meeting, he specifically chose the Corbett Report as the exclusive media forum for distributing word about his leaked and smuggled out G20 documents. That, of course, is a testament to the incredible work that all of my listeners are doing in helping to spread the word about this podcast, this website, and the information contained therein. But as the great philosopher Spider-Man sagely advised us, with great power comes great responsibility. So I certainly hope that my listeners will not wait for orders from headquarters when they see a large story like the exclusive Estulin interview break on the Corbett Report, and will start distributing and getting the word out about that immediately. As I don't think I have to explain the importance of such incredible documents to my very informed listeners. On another note, and another testament to just how much the Corbett Report website has exploded over the past few months, I continue to receive far more email than I can ever possibly hope to respond to while continuing to maintain the website. So once again, to anyone who's written in recently and not received a reply, 
Please don't take it personally. I try to get back whenever it's possible and appropriate. By far, one of the most common things that people contact me about is the music that opens and ends each episode of The Corbett Report, and usually I get several requests a week to identify some of the songs that have been used. Of course, it is my intention to help people support the artists that I feature, as one of the values of a media platform like The Corbett Report is to help spread the word and help support artists who are getting the word out on truth-related issues. To that end, I'm going to begin the monumental task when I have some spare moments to assemble the Corbett Report master playlist of all of the music that has been used in the opening and closing of each episode of the podcast. But of course, that is something of a daunting undertaking now that there's 108 episodes of this podcast out there. So please be patient, and I will certainly let you know when that is up on the website. By all means, keep the feedback coming in as it's greatly appreciated and helps to keep me motivated to continue putting out an inhuman amount of data each week. But on that note, let's get right into today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from The Corbett Report, 11th of November 2009. Estulin. After G20, oligarchs moving on African Union population reduction. In an exclusive interview with The Corbett Report earlier today, Daniel Estulin revealed the -the behind-the-scenes details of last week's G20 finance minister's meeting in St. Andrews, Scotland. Many of these details come from actual G20 documents that his sources were able to sneak out of the meetings in spite of security measures which, Estulin notes, were unprecedented even by Bilderberg standards. These documents, which contain valuable information about the conference, are available at BilderbergBook.com and have been mirrored on the Corbett Report homepage. They were smuggled out at great personal risk and need to be disseminated widely. The key issue discussed at the meeting, according to Estlin, was the next step in globalization, which is the creation of the African Union. This is part of an unfolding agenda of the ceding of national sovereignty to unaccountable regional governments, which can more easily administer and implement the aims of the financial oligarchs. One of these aims is the elite's exhaustively documented penchant for population reduction, including tying development aid to population control problems. The creation of the borderless African continent will be spearheaded by the IMF. Today's second real news story comes from BBC News, 13th of November 2009. New York trial for 9-11 suspects. Alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is to be sent from Guantanamo Bay to New York for trial in a civilian court, the U.S. has confirmed. Attorney General Eric Holder said he would be transferred from the U.S. prison camp in Cuba with four other suspects. Mr. Mohammed has admitted planning the 9-11 attacks, the U.S. military says. The move is part of U.S. President Barack Obama's efforts to close Guantanamo, but some relatives of 9-11 victims say they oppose a federal court trial. Responsibility for the case will go to the Southern District of New York, with proceedings taking place near Ground Zero. 
Today's next real news story comes from the telegraph.co.uk, 10th of November 2009. State to spy on every phone call, email, and web search. Every phone call, text message, email, and website visit made by private citizens is to be stored for a year and will be available for monitoring by government bodies. All telecom companies and internet service providers will be required by law to keep a record of every customer's personal communications, showing who they have contacted, when and where, as well as the websites they have visited. Despite widespread opposition to the increasing amount of surveillance in Britain, 653 public bodies will be given access to the information, including police, local councils, the Financial Services Authority, the Ambulance Service, fire authorities, and even prison governors. They will not require the permission of a judge or a magistrate to obtain the information, but simply the authorization of a senior police officer or the equivalent of a deputy head of department at a local authority. Today's next real news story also comes from telegraph.co.uk, the 11th of November 2009. DNA of protesters could be held for life. Anti-war protesters and train spotters arrested under anti-terror laws could have their DNA kept for life under home office plans. Innocent members of the public detained but not charged or convicted under terrorism legislation may never have their profiles wiped from the national database because they are to be treated differently to all other alleged offenses. The proposal is directed at those arrested for suspected terror offenses but could apply to anyone held under a terrorism act. In contrast, those innocent of any other suspended crime will be kept for a maximum of six years. Today's final real news story comes from bnet.com, the 11th of November 2009. Verichip buys Steel Vault, creating micro-implant health record slash credit score empire. Verichip The company that markets a microchip implant that links to your online health records has acquired Steel Vault, a credit monitoring and anti-identity theft company. The combined company will operate under a new name, Positive ID. The all-stock transaction will leave Positive ID in charge of a burgeoning empire of identity, health, and microchip implant businesses that will only encourage its critics. Positive ID CEO Scott Silverman said, Positive ID will be the first company of its kind to combine a successful identity security business with one of the world's first personal health records through our health link business. Positive ID will address some of the most important issues affecting our society today with our identification tools and technologies for consumers and businesses. Unless, of course... Consumers don't actually want to be implanted with chips, have their health records available over the internet, or have their medical records linked to their credit scores. Welcome, my friends, to episode 108 of The Corbett Report, Peace Prizes 
for warmongers. The Nobel Peace Prize, according to NobelPrize.org, the official homepage for the Nobel Prizes, is the world's most prestigious prize awarded for the preservation of peace. For any out there who might not know about the history of the prize, that can be garnered from an article on NobelPrize.org entitled The Nobel Peace Prize 1901-2000, which is a summary of the prize and its history. And this comes from a section entitled Nobel's Will and the Peace Prize. Quote, When Alfred Nobel died on December 10, 1896, it was discovered that he had left a will, dated November 27, 1895, according to which most of his vast wealth was to be used for five prizes, including one for peace. The prize for peace was to be awarded to the person who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding of peace congresses. The prize was to be awarded by a committee of five persons to be elected by the Norwegian Storting. End quote. And so it was that on October 9th of 2009, the world once again collectively held its breath and waited for the Norwegian Nobel Committee to bestow upon us word about who would receive this year's most illustrious and prestigious prize for the preservation of peace in our world. The Nobel Peace Prize for 2009 is to be awarded to President Barack Obama for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. The committee has attached special importance to Obama's vision of and work for a world without nuclear weapons. Obama has, as president, created a new international climate. Politi multilateral diplomacy has regained central position with emphasis on the role that the United Nations and other international institutions can play. Dialogue and negotiations are preferred as instruments for resolving even the most difficult conflicts. Suffice it to say that commentators from both sides of the phony left-right political spectrum were, at the very least, scratching their heads in puzzlement over the selection of the Obama Saya as the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, considering the United States and its current situation in, and involvement in numerous theaters of operation militarily around the world today. This can be seen not merely from the alternative media, but even from the corporate-controlled media, which had to concede, as did the New York Times, for, for example, surprise Nobel for Obama stirs praise and doubts. Or CNN.com, which ran essentially the same story, praise and skepticism greet Obama's Nobel Peace Prize. Even the London Guardian, perhaps the most recognizable bastion of liberalism in the controlled corporate media anywhere in the world, had to ask Barack Obama's Nobel Prize, why now? AFP released a very interesting article on the 15th in which they revealed that majority of Nobel jury objected to Obama Prize. We see essentially the same reaction from all around the world. We have the local.se reporting from Sweden, Obama Nobel win shocks Swedish peace group. 
Quote, the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society, Svenska Freds, has classified as shameful the decision by the Nobel Committee in Oslo to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2009 to Barack Obama. The choice of Barack Obama as the recipient of the world's foremost peace prize is shocking, said the group's chairwoman, Anna Eck, in a statement. Eck conceded that the U.S. president had sent positive signals with regard to his future commitment to global peace. But at the same time, Obama is the president of the biggest military power in the world and is waging two wars in the world. That should certainly disqualify him from a peace prize, said Eck. End quote. It certainly should, shouldn't it? Well, essentially the same reaction from Australia, where the unfortunately named former foreign minister of Australia, Alexander Downer, noted that the Nobel Prize for Obama was, quote, a farce. And even well-known Democrat George Stephanopoulos on his ABC News blog put up some of the best Obama Nobel jokes for on the day of Obama's reception of the prize, October 9th, 2009. And of those jokes, which I encourage my listeners to check out for, for a political chuckle, perhaps the most insightful is the one from Eric Erickson. Obama is becoming Jimmy Carter faster than Jimmy Carter became Jimmy Carter, which is appropriate for oh so many reasons. But even given all the bewilderment, shock, head-scratching, and even consternation among the international community at the Nobel Prize Committee's selection of Obama as the International Man of Peace for this year, perhaps no one was more shocked than Obama himself. I am both surprised and deeply humbled by the decision of the Nobel Committee. Let me be clear, I do not view it as a recognition of my own accomplishments, but rather as an affirmation of American leadership on behalf of aspirations held by people in all nations. To be honest, uh, I do not feel that I deserve to be in the company of so many of the transformative figures who've been honored by this prize, uh, men and women who've inspired me and inspired the entire world through their courageous pursuit of peace. Well, if we can take the dissembler-in-chief's words at face value for once, and for once I think we might actually be able to do so, then it really did come as a shock to almost everyone on the entire planet that the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Barack H. Obama, and apparently even some of the members of the committee were upset about that decision. So the obvious next step was to try to figure out why on earth Barack H. Obama was awarded the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize. Well, as I say, in the days after the awarding of this prize, there were many, many attempts to make sense of this bizarre decision. And one of the most obvious ways to do so is to look at the history of the Nobel Peace Prize and see if there is perhaps a pattern into which this award fits. And that offered itself readily enough to many bloggers and commentators on this issue, including freedomscost.net, which put up an article on October 12th, 2009, under the headline, My Dynamite Will Sooner Lead to Peace, which of course is a reference to Alfred Nobel himself, who famously was the inventor of dynamite, 
and there is much talk about how the inventor of dynamite invented the peace prize and what that means for the peace prize and i'll include a link to a very interesting discussion that democracy now had about alfred nobel's home of sweden and their role in the manufacture and international distribution of arms and that legacy that alfred nobel himself left his own home country but the freedomscost.net blog post notes a very interesting quote from Alfred Nobel. Quote, My dynamite will sooner lead to peace than a thousand world conventions. As soon as men will find that in one instant whole armies can be utterly destroyed, they surely will abide by global peace. End quote. Well, that's a very interesting and contortionist philosophical justification for a life of war profiteering, but it doesn't really wash, especially given the history of the 20th century, which, granted, Alfred Nobel was not privy to, and perhaps he really was idealistic and really did believe in such a principle, but it's particularly ironic to note that that is the very principle that underlies the entire basis for the nuclear deterrent policy, which supposedly makes nuclear weapons necessary for the United States and select other countries who have somehow acquired the right to have nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. And of course, America is the only country in the world that apparently has the right to use those weapons of mass destruction in warfare and for that to be completely justifiable, as they did at the end of World War II. But perhaps that's another matter. At any rate, apparently Alfred Nobel would have embraced the spirit of the nuclear deterrence policy and thus presumably would have been actively encouraging the nations of the world to be stocking up on nuclear weapons, which no doubt he would have been more than happy to sell them. But perhaps that's another story. Well, keeping on the theme of the history of the Nobel Prizes and how Obama's win might fit into that, well, ironically enough, we have a very, very good and interesting piece from The Guardian from 2003, back when the right-wing puppet was in office, where they wrote a commentary on the, quote, ignoble peace prize. And that article reads in part, quote, Given the fact that previous nominees include Adolf Hitler and Henry Kissinger, can anyone take the Nobel Peace Prize seriously? Which word connects Bono, the European Union, Jacques Chirac, and George Bush. Peace, apparently. It has been announced that they have all been nominated by the rather convoluted method by which these things are done for this year's prize. Of course, this raises a number of questions. Not least, who would pick up the prize if the European Union won it? And on whose mantelpiece would it find a home? Added to this, we are not even two months into the new year, and Jimmy Carter is still basking in the glory of last year's award. How can anyone put forward either Chirac or Bush? With the war in Iraq not even started yet, it seems odd that the two are in the running. Putting aside the hawk's view of the French president and the dove's view of Bush, the idea that either of them is promoting world peace seems not only ludicrous, but also an offense to the meaning of the word. Have those responsible for sending these nominations to the Nobel Institute misplaced their dictionaries? But then, that is nothing new for the Nobel Peace Prize. After all, Adolf Hitler was in the running in 1938. Yes, that's 1938, not 1933. After the persecution of the Jews had been established under the Nuremberg Laws. This was also the same year in which Gandhi was nominated, although the committee agreed that he didn't 
deserve recognition. Alfred Nobel, incidentally, also invented dynamite. And there was also the famous comment by the American songwriter Tom Lehrer, who believed that political satire became obsolete when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1973, Kissinger, then the U.S. Secretary of State, was jointly honored with his Vietnamese counterpart, Le Duc Thu, for their roles in negotiating the Vietnam Peace Accord. There was a certain irony in this, as Kissinger is accused of deliberately scuppering the peace talks in 1968, leading to the unnecessary prolongation of an already pointless war. His peace efforts in Cambodia, Chile, Cyprus, Bangladesh, and East Timor also failed to win universal praise. Le Duc Thu, quite understandably, declined to accept the award. End quote. And yes, in case you didn't believe it, you can actually go to NobelPrize.org and search their nomination database for the Nobel Prize in Peace from 1901 to 1956 to find out that, yes, indeed, Adolf Hitler was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, as was Benito Mussolini in 1935, and... Joseph Stalin in 1945. Yes, just wonderful, peace-loving individuals who have been nominated. And although it didn't happen at the time that that Guardian article was written, and although the Guardian would never frame it in a bad light, we can also note such things as Al Gore's winning of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 as another particularly ignoble event, especially given the fact that Al Gore used his acceptance speech to basically harangue the world and tell human beings that they are a stain on the earth that need to stop their deadly CO2 pollution. Other ignoble Nobel Prize recipients includes the United Nations Peacekeeping Forces as a whole, which received the award in 1988, and listeners to this podcast might remember some of the ignoble things that they've done from previous episodes of this podcast, but if you need a further glimpse into that, you might take a look at, for example, the Global Policy Forum at globalpolicy.org, which had UN peacekeepers criticized on its website on December 22, 2002, an article from the Scotsman which details just some of the horrific abuses of Eritreans that Irish UN peacekeepers had been accused of, and the UN itself at UN.org, which released a publication called Africa Renewal in 2005, which detailed how the UN was finally taking a tough line on peacekeeper abuses. And again, just typing in United Nations peacekeeper abuse into Google will yield adequate results to keep you reading for a long time about some of the truly ignoble things that have been done in the name of UN peacekeeping, which should shame anyone who believes that the 1988 Peace Prize was a good idea. And along those lines, we can also take a look at how Obama has, in fact, been an ignoble person to hold up as an example of a man of peace. And a good way to do that is to take a look at some of the specific examples of things that he has done in the past year. In fact, the time as President of the United States in question for his prize acceptance. And we can do that by taking a look at distantocean.com, which had a very good list of such headlines from October 9th, 2009. It was put under the headline, What It Takes to Win a Nobel, and it pointed to such articles as President Obama orders Pakistan drone attacks, 
U.S. air raid kills over 100 civilians in Farah. Obama warns Iran, come clean on nukes. And Nobel Prize win humbles Obama. Another good way of putting this prize into perspective and critiquing its fundamental premises and existence comes from another very well-researched article from the independent.co.uk. It's called, And the Other Nobel Peace Prize Nominees Were, and it talks about some of the other 200 proposed candidates for the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize, the people who did not win because Lord Obama Saya was taking their place as international man of peace. But some of the incredible individuals who were nominated but were apparently not as worthy of this award as Barack Hussein Obama include Dennis Mukwege, doctor dedicated to helping rape victims, Seema Samar, working for Afghan families, Ghazi bin Muhammad, philosopher in search of peace, Greg Mordensen, mountaineer fighting Islamic extremism with education, Piedad Cordoba, Colombia's woman of peace, and Wei Jingshen, the father of Chinese democracy. And those are some very interesting stories to read, and I would highly suggest that people do go to the documentation section on CorbettReport.com and find the documentation for today's episode so you can read that article in its entirety. But perhaps one of the most eloquent and piercing critiques of this prize came from Martha Rose Crow, who has a blog, but this is via SOTT.net, Sign of the Times, the Orwell Peace Prize, and this was posted right after the Obama Award was announced. Quote, Right after Christmas, my nephew is leaving for another tour in Afghanistan. My sister's heart and my heart are broken. The chances are good that this time he's coming back in a box with a flag on top of it. But in many ways, he's dead already. Like many soldiers who've come back from the Middle East, he's wired on self-destruct. My sister has told me that she can't count the times she's taken guns away from him when he was threatening suicide, because those times have been so many. When I was a child, I was highly idealistic. I wanted to swim the English Channel. I wanted to live an exceptional life. I wanted to graduate from the university and perform work that would improve the lives of others. I wanted to be a peacemaker, and I wanted to earn a Nobel Peace Prize. Back then, I didn't know about the dirty money connected with the prizes, that they came from money made from munitions, or that the principle of the endowment was invested in more implements of war and or of human oppression, like capitalism that rapes the world for cheap natural resources and cheap human labor. My childhood idealism about the Nobel Peace Prize waned a long time ago. It took a while, but I learned that it was awarded by elites to politically frame the culture of peace and or use the awardee as propaganda for the elite. It seemed to me that too many of the real peacemakers are never awarded any prizes for their work, and that too many heads of state are awarded it instead. In the book 1984 by George Orwell, War is Peace and Peace is War, Orwell's book paints a psychopathic universe where reality is the opposite of what it really is. In Oceana, the place where the book takes place, lies rule. They become the truth. The whole place is built upon the lies of the party or the ruling elite. When I saw that Obama had won the Nobel Peace Prize, I almost fell out of my chair. He's only nine months into his presidency, and he has done nothing to stop any of the American wars. 
Contrarily, he's escalated the war in Afghanistan and spread it to Pakistan. Obama wants to add 40,000 more troops in Afghanistan. Last I heard, the war in Iraq is still continuing. More, the opaque and unwinnable war against terrorism is still going on as well, while the definition of a terrorist keeps expanding to include anyone who opposes tyranny, including war. What about torture? Obama hasn't done anything to stop it. That status quo merry-go-round of violence and the violence of lies goes on and on. In lieu of the lack of bringing peace, Obama should have won the Nobel Peace Prize for economics as more people are out of work now than when he was given the mantle of presidency. This is how great the hypocrisy is. This will be my nephew's third tour of duty. For a year, if he stays alive that long, we will live on pins and needles. Every day, we will hope that bad news doesn't arrive at the front door brought by a well-dressed soldier messenger. Every day, we will hear about new casualties and worry if he is one of them. We will live in a limbic hell and wait. And during this time, Obama will escalate the wars, support Israel's illegal wars, while wearing the official Nobel crown as the new Prince of Peace. End quote. Now that article, I think, is stunning in the way that it truly lays bare the system of control that is propagated through such things as the Nobel Peace Prize. As we know, culture is weaponized, and insofar as Nobel Peace Prize is an important part of our current global culture, this too is a weapon that the elites can yield to, as the author Martha Rose Crow says, frame the culture of peace and or use the awardee as propaganda for the elite. Now, I know that many of my listeners will get hung up on the fact that she attacks capitalism rather than specifically monopoly crony capitalism, which is that abomination that we've been forced to endure, at least since the creation of the central banks, but really since the creation of our current economic order. But at any rate, I think you'll agree that that is a particularly piercing and poignant piece about what this prize really means. And yet, having said all of that, and having thoroughly discredited the idea and the presumptions and the assumptions and the fundamental premises of the Nobel Peace Prize and what it supposedly represents, perhaps there is a way in which this prize really does indicate a gesture towards peace. This is a concept that occurred to me shortly after I read about the shocking Nobel Peace Prize Award for 2009, and I shared some of my thoughts with Captain Jack of Badlands Radio on the day after the award, an interesting and wide-ranging interview that can now be downloaded from reportagebook.com. Let's listen to a short excerpt. With that being said, I have to read this email to you because I, I asked for listeners out there um, to give me their thoughts on this. And I got this email and it says, words and deeds are not the same. Obama has done nothing but read a teleprompter. He, is, he does not deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Four and one against him on surveys I've seen. This prize has been irrelevant since Arafat, Carter, and 
well, Gore won it anyway. I think Ronald McDonald is more deserving of this award than Obama. <laughs> well said. No. Well said indeed. Well said indeed. Which then, well, when things like that come up, you have to sit back and you have to lean back in your chair and question the validity of of the prize itself or the people awarding it. What the hell is that? Absolutely. Well, I, 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 I'm incredibly hardened to see that the media reaction so far has been basically one of where they're they're admitting that everyone is shocked that the reporters in the room when it was announced all gasped in unison because they couldn't believe what they were hearing that even the Obama administration yeah. itself is saying they can't believe it so I, I, I'm glad to see that that angle is being picked up on and at another angle that something that I, I haven't seen so much of but something that I'd like to believe is that perhaps maybe there really is a strategic decision behind giving Obama the Nobel Peace Prize at this particular juncture oh, yeah. as the war rhetoric towards Iran is ratcheting up to, to levels that we haven't seen since 2007 when the uh, Iran war was very much on the table and as we see the beginnings of what could be the, the military strike that I've said time and again, Iran is the start of World War III. If we go into Iran, I think all bets are off the table. And I'd like to believe that there is some strategic decision here to give Obama the Nobel Peace Prize in order to utterly stop, cut off one of the legs of his Iran war rhetoric and, and, and hopefully push him more in the direction of the nuclear disarmament rhetoric, which we all know is just rhetoric he's reading off a teleprompter, but at the very least, right. perhaps this will shame some of the people in the system into maybe going along with it a little bit more longer and giving it more time. So I don't know, maybe there's some strategic value towards this, but at any rate, I think the vast majority of people out there realize that Obama has done nothing in his life to deserve a prize <laughs> of this magnitude. The idea that this was an award that was in fact given to Obama in order to encourage him, perhaps even shame him, into taking a path of peace when it comes to Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan is held not only by myself, but by many others who have pointed out that this award has often been used in the past to promote that idea, to either shame someone into acting in a certain way or to express the hope that a situation will resolve itself in a peaceful manner and that the prize will in fact help to shape that process. Perhaps it is utterly idealistic, but it is at least one way of trying to think of these awards. And perhaps there is something to it. It should be obvious to my listeners that attacking Obama from the right side of the phony left-right political paradigm will do no good to waking up those people who are in that political matrix on the left side, and who therefore think that the left side is good, and that therefore their left leader, Obama, can do no wrong. Again, it's a complete charade, so it's important not to attack Obama as a person, because as a person he's unimportant. It's only his message and the financial oligarchs he's fronting for that are important. But taking that into account, we can discredit what they are doing by demonstrating to those who are trapped in the left side of the phony left-right political paradigm that Obama does not stand for peace. Obama stands for war. Put that fact in front of the face of people who so vociferously opposed the wars during the time of Bush, then we can hope to shake a few people out of that matrix. And that is the point. 
So to the extent that the Nobel Peace Prize going to Obama can help us to do that, I am all on board with it. And that is precisely the message of my latest video, Is Obama a Man of Peace?, which can now be found at youtube.com slash CorbettReport and veracityvideos.com slash CorbettReport. And I suggest people take a look at that video, as it highlights an interview that I conducted this week with Motofumi Asai, the president of the Hiroshima Peace Institute. As some of my listeners may know, Obama was in Japan this week, and he was visiting the Prime Minister in Tokyo, as well as the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. He had been invited to visit Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to visit the A-bomb memorials, but like every other US president, he has declined that offer. Perhaps unsurprising to anyone who realizes that the change of the Obama administration is not change at all, but perhaps surprising to those who are, as I say, trapped in the matrix. So I certainly hope that this video will shake a few people out of their preconceived notions of what Obama is and what he represents. And again, I leave it up to my listeners to help spread the word about that video. But at any rate, you yourself can go check out that video to see what Mr. Asai has to say about Obama's reception of the award. And I think it's broadly in line with what I just said, that in fact, this could be and probably is a gesture on the part of the nominating committee to urge Obama to become the man of peace that he so evidently isn't. Let's take a moment to listen to an extract from that interview that is not included in the video, in which we step back for a moment from the discussion of the Peace Prize and Obama to talk about the meaning of peace itself. What is it that we're striving for? Yeah, well, uh, well, uh, academically speaking, I think the term is, uh, uh, has been defined uh, rather precisely. But uh, the Japanese politics <laughs> has made the, uh, the uh, term peace uh, in more vaguer terms uh, so that they can, they could justify their policies or actions as peaceful. <laughs> but uh, I don't agree with such uh, use or, or abuse of the term peace in such vague terms. I, 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 when I speak about peace, I try to be strict in its, uh, in its uh, definition. Mm. So how would you define peace? Well, as I told you already, uh, well, there are two categories of peace. One is uh, war as against, and peace as against war. Uh, so it's, uh, 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 as I you said, uh, it, it's uh, in a sense the, the, the absence of war. But uh, I think uh, there should be more broader definition of peace. Uh, in that sense, it should include the uh, the. Uh, Peace as against the uh, structural violence, uh, which includes the economic, 
climate or, or, or others. Uh, in a sense, I think uh, the factors which deny human dignity uh, are uh, uh, the uh, factors which compose the uh, structure as against the peace. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. that mm. makes perfect mm. sense, mm. actually. Mm. Um, so can you give an example of, of that from your, either your career or background or something that you've observed in Japanese politics? Mm. Mm. Well, the main reason why I, uh, I became concerned about human dignity was uh, because of my uh, diplomatic experiences in China or more broadly in Asia. Uh, well, we had a history of uh, military invasion into Asia and especially China and uh, the Korean Peninsula. Uh, it, it was the colonization of the Korean, Korean Peninsula. But uh, anyway, well, in the course of our military aggression or invasion, we, the uh, Japanese army or the, the country of Japan uh, had done so uh, violent uh, criminal acts against the uh, Asian people. And by that we really criminal actions uh, which should be termed as uh, anti, uh, as against the human dignity. We really uh, denied human dignity of the Asian people. And uh, very sadly, even after the defeat of Japan in the World War II, we have neglected to repent our past deeds. Indeed, peace is not merely a negative concept. It is not merely the absence of war. If we mean peace in any true, meaningful sense of that word, I think it's evident that we mean something altogether quite different. We mean a peace that is constructed on, as Mr. Asai says, a fundamental belief in and adherence to the principles of human dignity. And I think that implies many of the things that we talk about in this podcast, including human liberty and the ideals that were embodied in such landmark documents as the United States Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Those are the types of ideals that we are striving for and that we must rediscover through all the rhetoric of peace that we're subjected to, the idea of peacekeeping as an extension of warfare, or the idea of giving peace prizes to warmongers in hopes of placating them and making them act in peaceful ways. Peace is not a strategy. Peace is not a political position. Peace is not diplomacy. Peace is an end in itself. 
And once again, we note that the revolution of peace that we seek will never be accomplished by any amount of violence or killing. It will only be brought about through the revolution of the mind. That is why we must utterly destroy the precepts for war, which we are always fed, the staged incidents that the financial oligarchs and their political and media puppets dangle before our eyes to try to get us mad at those people over there. There are more and more and more people in whose eyes the system has been so thoroughly discredited that they will not believe the next time a false flag terrorist incident is pulled off in order to try to justify another war which nobody wants. And that is the key. Uh, I, I think we can we can put the, what Charlie Sheen has done together with uh, Cindy Sheehan going to Martha's Vineyard to uh, confront Obama on the question of the uh, the Afghan War, and I think what it what it might mean for us now is to revive this entire area of activism, which has uh, which has tended to uh, to decline over the last year or so. What I mean by that is this: the nine eleven Truth Movement and the anti war movement were artificially separated. And this was mostly the the, uh, the guilt, I think, of, of left liberals who refused to entertain what they called conspiracy theories. And, of course, that's it's just ridiculous. So it meant that they were banned from looking at the thing that Bush and Cheney were always citing as the basis for everything they did, which were the 9-11 attacks. So the 9-11 truth movement, in, in, its, in its better moments, always tried to merge with the anti-war movement, saying, look, you know, you, need, you guys need a head, or the... Uh, the 9-11 Truth Movement always represented the, the anti-war movement with a brain. Now what we've had is, with the coming of Obama, the left liberal, foundation-funded anti-war movement has basically dried up. They've gone away. They've quit. They're, they're not interested in this huge war in Afghanistan that's, that's escalating every day, and they're not interested in, in the fact that you've still got 120,000 GIs in Iraq. And I think what, what is possible now is, the people who are still concerned about 9-11, because all of those, the networks that did 9-11 are still honeycombing and infesting the Pentagon, the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, and all these other agencies, because that's how it was carried out. The people who are concerned about that can now, I think, reassert the, the political relevance of this. If you combine it with the anti-Afghan war uh, ferment, which is big, and it's big uh, worldwide, right? It's breaking out in Germany over this late, latest uh, horrendous atrocity of killing 100 people around a tanker truck. So what I see is it's time to assert 9-11 truth combined with uh, U.S. get out of Iraq and get out of Afghanistan. It would liquidate the premise and liquidate the consequences that Obama has now been pushing in his Phoenix speech of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's all Obama is doing is papering over all the resistance that was mounting against these imperial wars, his job is to pacify the left and to inject race-pimping division in. We'll talk about that with Webster Tarpley when we get back. So much more remains to be said about this subject, perhaps the defining subject of our time, or indeed of human civilization itself. But let's end today with the words of a Nobel Peace Prize recipient, who was actually deserving of that honor. Let's listen to a selection from Martin Luther King's Nobel Prize acceptance speech on December 10th, 1964. That's it for today. 
I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for episode 109 of The Corbett Report, The Crisis of Sovereignty. I accept this award today with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere floatsome and jetsome in the river of life, unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear annihilation. I believe that un unarmed truth an unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Brother man, war is not the answer. 